program. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner with Ray Constable and Skiing here in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined today by Jerry Sunderland, who's also a partner here at Wright Constable. And um, Jerry um, has been in the uh, surety industry for 46 years and brings a unique perspective to his, to his practice because he's worked in-house for surety companies for the Aetna and for uh, F&D. And he's also worked as an assistant attorney general for the Maryland Transportation Authority and, of course, uh, many, many years in private practice. So he's been on all sides of the table, so to speak. So uh, we're lucky to have Jerry here. As you, everybody knows, the Surety Today is designed to keep the busy surety claims professionals up to date and informed. It's a program that we offer uh, just to in-house people, and it's continuing to gain in popularity. I think the last count we had over 135 pins issued, um, and we would ask uh, or appreciate your passing along our contact information to any of your colleagues who might be interested in uh, participating and, and get a PIN number to them. Uh, we'd be happy to do that. So as always, if you have any issues with the call, please get in touch with Jeannie Hyatt. Um, that's J Hyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at WCSlaw.com. Uh, we will mute the line and, uh, so that we don't get any you know, background interference or noise. And we're also recording the call so that we can post the recordings and uh, also a written transcript of the recordings on our website. And we got a request uh, by one of the listeners to do a podcast with uh, the recordings. And so we're looking into that, and we'll probably be putting these um, on the web as podcasts. So, um, and again, as always, at the end, there'll be a Q&A session. And uh, the line will be unmuted, so if you have any questions at that time, uh, you can ask. So hold on a second here. Let me put the mute on. Okay, so our topic today is the surety in the federal government, how the surety can use the FARS and the Lumberman's decision and other cases to its advantage. Um, this is one, this is the first installment, uh, we hope, in a number of installments under this general topic of the surety in the federal government. Uh, we want to get to a number of issues. Uh, today, Jerry is going to be doing the presentation. Ordinarily, at least in the past, we've sort of you know, gone back and forth between myself and, and either Cindy or George, who did the first two. Uh, but Jerry's going to cover this topic himself. He's, he's spoken about it several times. He's written about it several times. And I think he's got really uh, just a, a huge wealth of knowledge on it. So first he's going to look at two cases, national surety and lumberman's, and then talk about how to reconcile these two conflicting cases and talk about how a surety claims handler can use those cases uh, in a federal government context. And then uh, he'll focus on the Federal Prompt Pay Act and how the claims handler can use the provisions of that statute and the provisions of the corresponding FAR regulations uh, to, to its advantage when, when dealing with claims. So with that said, I would turn it over to Jerry to give us the presentation. Okay, I'm looking at uh, attempts by the actual people in the field to try to protect the surety's rights to contract funds, primarily in a payment bond situation. There are numerous iterations of this problem, but today I really want to look in the situation of protecting the contract funds where you're in payment bond claims. Uh, there are two major cases 
on this issue, and I'd hate to talk about case law without you looking in, in my eyes, but I think I have to mention it. Uh, the first case is called National Surety Corporation versus U.S. What else? It's cited at 118 Fed 3rd 1542 Fed Circuit 1997. Again, 118 Fed 3rd 1542 Fed but the contract said you must submit this. And retainage could not be released until the government received that uh, particular CPM schedule. Guess what? The government let it go, principal defaulted, surety filed suit against the government through premature release of the retainer. Surety recovered at claims court, surety recovered at the federal circuit. Now, you would think this is a pure litigation attorney talking, but what's important, it was a two-to-one decision by the Federal Circuit, and the chief judge of the Federal Circuit dissented. The government argued, and it goes back 50 years, that the government has no duty to assurity to protect the contract funds unless and until the surety notifies the government. And in fact, a number of the cases say there must be a, quote, notice of default, close quote, to the government, which, based on my experience many years ago, I was always hesitant as a surety in-house attorney to say, gee whiz, my principal's in default. But some of the cases use that precise word. Um, in holding for the uh, surety, the government, the court said the government had no discretion to deviate from a specific mandatory contract term to the detriment of the surety. In this case, it was a mandatory required term. There was no discretion. You shall not release retainage until you get this diagram. The government released the retainage, surety won to the extent of that retainage. Well, you could, it did talk about, the court did talk about, the, the government can modify the contract, but it has to follow the specific procedures to do that and has to get, you know, the signed documentation in place in order for it to modify. If it doesn't do that, what the court is saying is, you can't just ignore the federal law and, and do the work however you want to. I mean, and this was a non-discretionary term, and as Mike points out, that becomes very important. The next big case is Lumberman. Now, what's also important about this is a two-to-one decision by the Fed Circuit. Under the federal rules, a three-judge panel cannot overrule another three-judge panel. So national surety is still good law. Lumberman's is still good law. It's a technicality, but it's important. You can find it at 654 Fed 3rd, 1305, 2011 case. If I don't bore you too much, you can find a very detailed discussion of this case in a paper I gave at the Surety Claims Institute in 2012. 
if you have any member of your company, a member of the SCI, all you have to do is uh, go on, use uh, your member organization, and all of our papers are now word searchable since 1995, and I went to a fair amount of discussion on this case. I had a very hard time trying to rationalize these two cases. The government and Lowermans, quite frankly, in my opinion, did what the government often does. They don't give a damn about how much work was completed. They just kept paying, kept paying, kept paying, kept paying to keep the contractor going. The contractor ultimately fell on his face and notified the U.S. government that it had defaulted and could not complete the contract. I won't go in, I mean, basically 12% of the work had been finished. 44% of the contract funds had been paid. Surety argued there were multiple violations of the FARs regarding payment. If you go back and look at each and every one of the FARs mentioned in the opinion, they are all discretionary. The contracting officer has discretion to see if it's payments up to date. Contracting officer has this. They were all discretionary, unlike national surety. Um, the lawyer who handled this with the Department of Justice, in my opinion, is a very, very smart lawyer. He spoke at a, the Parliament a number of years ago, and simply because I'm, uh, shall we say, crazy, I asked him to go into a room with me, and he and I spent 45 minutes arguing about this case. And he finally made a point. All the cases involving the surety's rights to contract funds are based upon notice. Well, I said, gee whiz, there was no notice in national surety. And he said, well, the court in Lumberman said, gee whiz, they found notice upon default. But upon default is too late. He said, well, gee whiz, notice is what's important. He said, in this case, the surety did not give notice, and therefore the government had no duty to hold the contract funds. So in my opinion, and I will tell you there's no case in the country that has espoused this other than cases that say notice. I want to suggest to the claim handler how you can use this, quote, notice issue in both cases to your advantage. Let me take a couple of The FARs provide that, and it's a 28.106.5, 28.107.3, if I can read my handwriting, 28.106.5 and 28.107.7. The FARs provide that the government shall not withhold payments because subs and subcontractors have not been paid. Once the jobs have been withheld, finished, then the government may withhold. Now, that doesn't make sense and does not compare to all the cases over the past 40 years that have said if a government pays after a surety notice, the government could be liable. You have a Fireman's Fund of Newark case. You have the Balboa case. You have a Transamerica case. There are numerous cases. So here's where I'm going to suggest what you may try to do. Again, there's no law precisely on the point I've used this twice, and it's worked. Think about this. You're sitting at your desk. 
you have an account where from time to time you get a payment bond claim, time to time you get a complaint about the owner, time to time you get that. No big deal, we've all seen that. And there's always resolved. But then all of a sudden when federal, and this is primarily a federal contractor, you start getting what you perceive to be an increased claim volume. You write to your principal, principal and or lawyer responds to you and says, gee whiz, we don't owe this money because they haven't done this, they haven't done that, they haven't done whatever. All of us, and I can say I've seen it, see that all the time. And what do you do? You don't want to jump in and start paying claims because you have a principal who, which facially is very solvent, brings in good revenue. Your underwriters and a major agent say, oh, gee whiz, you can't bother these people because they're good. But you're starting to get nervous. Here's a practical suggestion using Lumberman's and National Surety in accordance with the Prompt Pay Act. The Prompt Pay Act is, the FARs are found at 32.905, 52.2325, and 52.3, These FARs are implementation of the federal statute. In essence, the federal government is required to pay, make payment upon receipt of a proper invoice within X number of days. My opinion, the federal government ignores it. And what I'm talking about now, most general contractors ignore it. The general contractor is required by the FARs and the statute if it receives, submits a payment, say, for $100,000, and it includes a request for $10,000 for the mechanical. Think about it. $100,000 for the contractor's own work and $10,000 for mechanical electrical. It then says, gee whiz, we have a fight with the mechanical electrical. They're late. They haven't done X. They have not performed. They have not done Y. And they tell you, surety claims professional, we're not paying because of this. That's fine. Under a Prompt Pay Act, there's nothing to prohibit the general from withholding money. But at the next pay request, the contractor is required to tell the government that's withheld that amount of money and is also required to reduce its pay request by that amount. In other words, again, $100,000 and $10,000. Next month, $100,000 of its work. It is required to reduce its pay request to $90,000 to allow the government to withhold the money for the sub. It is also required to give a written general, required to give a written notice to the contracting officer that the money has been withheld. Based on my experience, and I don't know about you all, but I guarantee you 95% of the jumbo contractors in this con company don't pay attention, don't agree with it, ignore it. But as a claims handler, think about this. You have these claims. The principal says you have defenses. They look good. You're getting more claims. What is wrong with you writing a letter to the principal saying, okay, we understand you have these claims and defenses. Send us your pay request. 
your prompt pay certifications, and by the way, send us notice to the contracting officer that you have withheld the money and you're going to reduce the pay request next time. I guarantee you, based on my experience, 98% of the time, the general contractor will scratch his head and say, oh, we have not done it. And you may get ignored. You may not get any response. Then you can say, and it depends how concerned you are, you can say to the principal or attorney, gee whiz, we happen to have this little piece of paper called a general agreement of indemnity. This says we have access to your books and records. We want these requests. Oh, uh, okay. If it's big enough, we're sending a consultant down. And by the way, you, your, your uh, spouse, significant other, are required to pay us for this. I guarantee you again, you're going to get no response. Then what's wrong with you writing a letter to the contracting officer? You don't have to say the contractor's in default, which is some of the magic words. You say, contracting officer, here's the notices of claims we have received. Our principal says they have defenses. We've asked for a prompt pay certification. We hereby demand and require you, the contracting officer, to enforce the specific terms and provisions of the contract. We expect you to demand their prompt pay certificates. If they have not withheld money, say, government, if you pay them without them withholding the appropriate amount of money, you have prejudiced our rights and discharged us to the extent of these payments. Um, and I think that gets you to both national surety and leverage. It's a mandatory contract term. The government has no ability to digress from this term. They must pay only if they get the appropriate prompt pay certifications. You say, government, you have not received them. If you pay, you pay us twice. Um, and I notice my time's getting short. If y'all, now I will tell you very quickly, there's a two-edged sword to this. There's what's called the False Claims Act. I only know three cases involving a surety in the United States under False Claims Act. One I cannot discuss because it's an act of litigation in uh, federal court in Washington. Hopefully we're going to get a decision soon. If so, I will share it. But the two cases are really crazy. One is where an agent and the contractor got together and agreed to split premiums on excess costs. They both lost money and went to jail. The other one, which is goofy in my opinion, the general contractor submitted a request for equitable adjustment and included bond premium. The court threw their multi-million dollar claim out because it was for bond premium not paid. If they used the word estimate, it would be fine. So in my scenario, think about this, and you have to factor this into your judgment, your policy decision. If the principal has a submitting pay request without withholding properly, have they committed a False Claims Act violation which can subject them to sanctions, which can then make the whole principal having doubtful financial viability? I've seen one case where 
principal, bonded principal, did everything. They completed the job. Government got exactly what they wanted. But they submitted pay requests, which were not quite accurate. And I think there were 12 of them. The government and the court said, okay, government, you were made whole. But you're going to pay a $10,000 fine for each false certificate of payment. And that was $120,000. Big contractors can afford it. But if you're working with a medium-sized contractor, that can be a death knell. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm not saying the government will pursue it. But I think I should mention it because I will also say from my perspective, if you all were around in the early 80s and you remember the cottage industry of asbestos cases, I'm seeing a cottage industry coming about of lawyers and small firms marketing themselves We'll take a prompt, uh, false claims act case for 10%. We'll pay you all of your expenses. I hope I didn't go too fast, but I would like in the future, and again, tell Mike, I'd like to then sometime in the next three or four months take the Indian Lumberland's case and utilize that to discuss what the Miller Act performance bond really is and how to use it to defend, which we've all seen, uh, threats of debarment. And by the way, you're talking to the individual who was an in-house lawyer for F&D when Bristol Steel came about. It was not my case initially. I was called into the vice president's office when F&D was debarred, as public record, along with his co-sureties by PennDOT. And I was told, okay, guys, get us back in business in 90 days. Simple thing, write a check. And then the president said, oh, no, Jerry, you have to pay me money in 90 days and make sure we get it back. Easy job. Thanks for your attention. I hope well, that helped you something. We still got some time. Let's talk about let's talk about the issue uh, in Lumberman's, where the court said that the surety's impairment defense um, could not be raised as an affirmative claim, but it did say it could be raised as a defense. Okay, I did so, not deliberately get into that because that's a performance bond side. We're all claims professionals. I perfectly. I personally don't think a queer tam or what they said was a overpayment defense. <coughs> well, this, essentially, it was a discharge of suretyship argument. The lawyer tried to make a discharge of suretyship argument an affirmative claim. I've never seen discharge of suretyship as an affirmative claim entitling to damages. Entitles you to in the federal, in the federal courts. Even in state courts, the, the, the cases are there. Now, I've never seen it in federal court, and I think good lawyer, but I think it was pled a little bit incorrectly. But the court said that you could still use it as a defense. In other words, the court was, what was interesting in the Lumberman's case was the court said that the surety could elect not to pay under the bond. Well, and, that instead, and instead could raise the defense of discharge based on the impairment. That gets to a very, very interesting topic. As far as I can determine, there's only one case in the United States that defines what a Milrack bond may be. It's a case that's going back, God, 30-plus years. It's called the Trinity Universal case out of the Fifth Circuit, best known for establishing a performance bonds of sureties, subrogation rights for contract funds, a superior performance bond surety to the IRS. In that opinion, 
And again, I think it's the only opinion in the country. They said, the court, Fed's, uh, Fifth Circuit, said the Miller Act bond is an indemnity bond. And as Mike points out, Lumberman's indicted, albeit, agrees with that. It's an indemnity bond. You don't have to undertake completion. And quite frankly, I've seen a trend, especially with one particular government agency, I won't mention, but they tend to wear very dark blue suits, and a lot of their officers come from a town in Annapolis, take a guess who it is, who are now taking the position that we will not enter into a takeover agreement unless the surety waives its penal sum. And I can think, I can make very good scenarios using lumbermen's to say, okay, guys in blue, shovel it. We're going to tender. We're going to write you a check. We're going to assert our defenses. And gee whiz, if you complain to the Department of Treasury, here's the case that says we have a defense and we're entitled to assert that defense. Okay, so just to uh, do a quick wrap-up here, thank you, Jerry, for that, by the way. Uh, before we get into the question and answer period, um, just want to remind everyone that the next edition of the Surety Today will be Monday, August the 8th at uh, 1230 Eastern Time. The topic will be the Surety and the UCC and uh, the Uniform Commercial Code, and I will be joined by Professor Lisa Sparks, our very own professor. She's of counsel here and uh, is a full-time professor at the uh, University of Baltimore School of Law, teach and she teaches the UCC. So she's going to be joining us uh, next month to talk about uh, the UCC and the issues and how that how the surety, um, you know, how it can affect the surety, the surety's claims, and so on. So that'll be good. Uh, quick rundown, uh, looks like, for, of events coming up in the surety world. August 18th, there's the Atlanta Surety Claims Association will be having their um, meeting. Uh, then we, I, I'm not aware of anything else really in July or August. Then we get into September, pretty busy. September 7th through the 9th is the Perlman Conference out in Seattle. I'll see somebody there. Jerry will be there. September 14th is the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch in Philly. Uh, September 21st through the 23rd is the Northeast uh, Surety Claims Conference in Atlantic City. Uh, hope to see everybody there. Uh, Wright Constable is a, uh, a co-sponsor of that uh, conference. Uh, I want to thank everybody for calling in, and uh, we hope you'll join us again on August 8th. Now let me uh, unmute the line and unrecord this session so that we can do any questions and answers.